All right, welcome um, to the next session of Deep Dives Live on uh, Saturday afternoon, kind of depending on where you are, at least in Europe. My name is Johannes Verweiden. I'm one of the founders of Deep Dives, full-time instructor for all of the cloud hyperscalers and have a quite an extensive background in uh, software development, uh, cloud architecting, machine learning, uh, just name it, right? And together with me, I have my old friend, Mikko, whom I've either been working with or working against, I guess, <laughs> for the past Both. 20, 20 plus years, soon 30, right? About Anything 30 you want to add, Mikko? Uh, just keep on doing that. I Just whatever you want to yeah. say. I, we have similar background. We have similar background, software development, software architecture. We both started uh, before this became our profession. We started with uh, with computers uh, in the late eighties, maybe. Or so. Yeah, our common background isn't from uh, Finland, but nowadays we live like I think two thousand kilometers apart. I'm in Portugal, and Nico is still back in Finland. So, so just kind of as a comparison, it is currently twenty degrees outside here in uh, South Portugal, and you, Mikko? It's snowing outside. <laughs> yeah. Probably minus 10 or something. I haven't looked out yet. You haven't there. Actually, it's, it's been snowing so much that there's there they are in trouble at the airport, which is not normal. So <laughs> right, a lot perfect. of snow. So um, I chose a title for our session this time. The title is called Frugality in Modern Service Development. Uh, and I put a typo in there as well. It's basically development, not development. So just fix that. <laughs> um, and uh, the idea here is that I'm, of course, referring to uh, Dr. Werner Fogel's keynote at reInvent, where he um, published or, or, or made public uh, a new website of his um, about frugality as an architect. And um, <clears throat> I didn't like to copy the title frugality as an architect because we're maybe a little bit more software development oriented. But then I appreciate that frugality is not only, you know, uh, software development dependent, it's also about architecture. So I decided to use the term service development instead, because that's basically what we did, right? We, we, we write software that run some kinds of services. Um, just a little bit of background from my point of view. Um, I really enjoyed the uh, keynote. If you haven't seen it, there should be a, a link to the YouTube video available for you. Um, it's, it's really nice. Um, it talks about a lot of things that that I have been talking about when giving um, DevOps lectures, uh, sometimes even software development lectures or or um, instruction. And um, uh, Mikko actually um, gave me the idea of uh, how to contextualize this through history. So uh, you want to talk about that for a couple of minutes and how you see that this is the same thing that happened back in the uh, 60s, 70s? 
I, I'm just wondering what what have I said to you? <laughs> it's all about yeah, time sharing, uh, right? Mainframes, or yeah. you, you mean that back in the day when resources were not limitless in in the mainframe mainframe time? I'm not that old that I've I've been working extensively with mainframes. Or am I? <laughs> but uh, I've heard from my colleagues, and I, I've learned from my colleagues that that, that uh, uh, back in the day it was really important to design your software and your databases. Basically, most of the time, relational databases. If we talk about data stores very carefully and really pay attention how do you access your database and what kind of queries you have and then when we moved to let's say regular on-prem servers you had uh, a really big box a really big server and you were able to write really bad code and nobody complained yeah i guess and like that's and we kind of forgot how things were done, or we never, maybe we never even knew how things were done in the mainframe time. But that's that's one of the problems, and that's why we probably have the, the frugal architect uh, seven laws there now uh, to kind of get the control back and really pay yeah, attention like, how you do things. Yeah, it's like like back in the sixties and seventies when. Um... Like in the, especially in academia, when people were kind of writing software and then running it on the on the the, the main the the, the 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 mini computer of the of the uh, university, your your department would get charged based on the amount of seconds that you would be using the CPU. So um, you know to keep your boss happy, your your code would better be well optimized right it, it made so, it made sense to write good code at least yeah from there was the a cl- there was a clear kind of financial thing uh, yeah. as soon as it, your code would be unoptimized you would get hit by a big bill right um and this was of course always retroactive as well right so you kind of didn't know beforehand what how, how long your your uh program is going to run for you could of course do some simulations but you wouldn't really know so um uh, that all kind of went away with microcomputers, um, uh, both on on a personal level. So the software that would be running in the microcomputer would most of the time, especially like back in the eighties, have full control over the whole microcomputer, um, whatever resources would Those be available. Were the days. Yeah. So so we just use that, and then if we're doing something simple, um, then it doesn't really matter. Uh, whether or not we are doing that in an optimized way. The only uh, reason why you would try to optimize something is if, if you would do something that would be complex that would otherwise you know, take too long for the end user to, to, to wait for. So um, we kind of brought that culture with us towards uh, service development or you know, server software development. Because back in the old days, um, there would, wouldn't be any virtual machines. We would literally run our software, our product, on, on a physical box. And then as long as you didn't hit the limit, either CPU or memory, of that one box, nobody would care about the performance of your software. 
right? So um, <clears throat> there was the kind of idea of a true idea about premature optimization back then, right? So it was more important to get um, through or velocity to, to kind of get an idea into production, uh, no matter regarding the implementation performance per se. And then kind of once we get to the, to, 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 or at least close to running out of CPU or, or memory, then we would revisit the code and try to optimize it in some way, right? So it's kind of a taking technical debt for velocity and then repaying it once, once you get there. And that all makes sense. It really and, did. And just to remind, remind everybody, when you started with a new service, you actually could just well, order a new server altogether. So you, you always had a bare metal server just for this new thing that you were building. Exactly. Yeah. And first of all, that was really slow. Like it takes time to get that server. But you had from your service point of view, you had almost limitless resources as long as your algorithms were not completely awful. Yeah. Um, and, and then um, something happened. Well, virtual machines happened, containerization happened, co-location of services on the same hardware happened. Um, and now with serverless compute, Lambda, et cetera, we're, we're back in, in, the, in square one where we are paying per millisecond of CPU usage, basically. Except we have very good visibility to the cost. We yeah, can exactly. immediately see how much things cost. And that's probably yeah. different from from uh, the old times. Exactly, and and that was kind of what warmed my heart when I was listening to the keynote of of uh, Dr. Fogel's. Um, um, that he he kind of went back to to this this idea of making sure um, that you know how much. Uh, maybe CPU you're using. And then uh, just to make a note here, uh, we're not throwing away the um, idea of gaining velocity versus performance, right? We're, we can still do that. It's totally okay. We can choose to do something non-optimized just to get velocity, so to get the feature out there. But now we have the, ch the, the choice of actually seeing what the cost implication of that is um, and then maybe considering whether we want to rewrite uh, a functionality uh, in, in a more optimized way. Uh, if there or is just re-architect, choose different components. Uh, yes, exactly. That's like, like something I think, that kind of... you couldn't do in the past. I, I just yeah. fondly remember the past where when you started writing something, you had a, some sort of a software uh, architecture there and you were just doing things the same way you were always doing it. And it was really difficult to change it. You were Absolutely. stuck with, you were stuck with the, the, the approaches and the solutions that you were, well, you were comfortable with. You knew, knew that these would work. And, but, but also from that time, I, the optimization, if you do it, just postpone it. You, you, you are building huge technical debt. Yeah. And I think that there's, there, there always has been a middle ground there 
that. If you know that this is the awful way of writing code, then why would you just ignore that and maybe do it properly in the beginning already? And the, the more experience you have, then it's easier to write things properly from day one without sacrificing the speed or agility, in my opinion. But then, of course, people do things differently. Yeah, it's it's a little it's a, it's, it's a little bit more complicated. Yeah. But I like the idea that you you should still um, try to kind of um, at least semi optimize or locally optimize from the yeah. beginning. Um, but now with the current you know technology that we have available, we need to revisit those choices to check whether whatever we were thinking back then is still valid now. Uh, yeah, or, for example, just actually... maybe it's better to choose a different database. Yeah, and and yeah. back in the day, it was, and not that long time ago, it was really difficult to choose a different database afterwards, yeah. especially if the organization only had one type of database. Then, well, that you wouldn't change that because you had no yeah, exactly. control on on that. Yeah. So so okay, uh, and and just. We are talking a lot about software development and code and programming, but in uh, Werner Vogel's uh, view, this is actually true also for kind of generic service architecture itself. And, and maybe um, we should just use a little bit of time to, to uh, talk about Werner um, himself. So uh, I've got the Wikipedia page here. I'm just going to post that into the channel as well. Zoom in um, a little bit. So, um, yeah, oops, this one. Yeah, thank you. So um, he's, he's Dutch, um, which you can still hear from his accent. <laughs> he's got a really, really nice Dutch accent. Um, and it's interesting that he actually didn't start out as a computer scientist. Instead of that, he was actually a radiologist, so, so studying uh, how to take x-rays and, and how to interpret those those uh, x-rays and actually during his um, work life uh, researching cancer treatments um, his his kind of mentor or boss um, told him to take up uh, a career in computer science so so he started uh, studying computer science uh, fairly late on, and and he actually went to an uh, university of applied sciences, so not 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 even a research uh, university. Uh, but then he he got himself himself out of there, um, and then uh, wrote a PhD on, on distributed systems, uh, and then got into the U.S. Uh, into Cornwall as a as a researcher researching distributed computing. So. Um, that's kind of the uh, the background, and then he had some startups, uh, and I think it was in two thousand and four. He uh, yeah he joined he joined Amazon, uh, and then fairly quickly became uh, CTO, uh, vice president for, for for technology as well. And um, so so he's a fairly smart person. But just for for any viewers that are maybe. Uh, in their early 30s, that's when he went to computer science, right? So he, he did that was not his first choice. So it's totally okay 
to make these kinds of career choices later on and then still become somebody that that actually um, that's actually quite impressive it is it is it is a smart smart shift, person make right? a make a shift like that yeah so the the website he um published during reinvent is this called the frugalarchitect.com so um he he has uh, a different website called all things distributed that he uh, uses for his blog but this is kind of a a specific website for this frugality um point of view right um and in that he he just kind of digests um basically the gist of what we have been talking about here for the past 15 minutes into seven laws um and i don't want to go through these one by one um i just want to you know everybody can go read those um that they're they're not they're, they're fairly short <laughs> laws so so fairly in, in interesting to see but, but in, in my opinion this kind of goes down to a couple of of key issues so the first key issue is observability and, and that's this is in in law number four i would guess um and um you you need to have visibility on your software development life cycle so first of all of course we all know that you need to have visibility onto your service architecture kind of how things work are there are they available how much do they cost that kind of stuff and, and then before you go before you continue uh, five of the seven laws mention cost yeah. and that should tell something as well yeah well frugality itself yeah. Yeah. being being a uh, dutch uh, <laughs> right i can say that but yeah so 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 observability is about not not only about knowing what the state of your system is right now um but but also to be able to make educated guesses or estimations about how what your system is going to be like in the future so we have kind of a time series of of visibility metrics and this is not only about the you know the production environment that your system is running in but but also your ci cd pipeline like in your ci cd pipeline you're running some tests well how do the test run times change over time why does a single unit test for a single module suddenly take longer than previously can you explain that maybe there is added functionality there you can maybe somebody decided to import half of the internet and then it's not very good right so so um kind of observing not only the the environment where your service is is um, running but also observing the whole pipeline how many lines of code are there why are, is there suddenly double the amount of code in in a single module is there there might be a good reason for that but it's something that you should you know every now and then take a look at and try to explain and then if there's something unexplained then that might be something to to uh, take a look at from from software architecture point of view uh, and software developer point of view uh, the observability is super important 
And when I'm looking at it, I'm not thinking about the cost. I'm looking at how how can I know what is happening in my system just from the like the software development point of view. If you if there's a bug and and you need to fix it, can you really tell what are all the components that are like working together? The documentation mm-hmm. usually doesn't cover that. The documentation is old. It's not up to date. Maybe it was never written or it was written, but the implementation doesn't match what what the documentation says. And if you're a new person to a specific project, you have no idea what are the components unless you have good observability and good visibility to everything. Mm-hmm. And and back in the day, all you had was a bunch of logs. Mm-hmm. And from the logs, you had to figure out what are the different components that are running in a distributed system. Exactly. And yeah, that was hard. But, All right. But, so, so. but and and that was just and that's me talking as a software developer, and I was not thinking about the cost here with observability. But yes, definitely, uh, you you need yeah, so. observability to the cost as well. Yeah, so observability, you know, if we simplify the architecture a little bit, let's say that we're talking about serverless architecture with, you know, Lambda functions as the compute implementation. Then basically observability tells you, you know, how many times has your Lambda function been called during the past month and and what the average uh, runtime was. That gives you your Lambda bill, right? And the relationship between different Lambda functions. Oh, yeah, also that. So that kind of allows you to take a look at, okay, so, so where is my cost? What is my cost actually composed of? Now, purely on the compute side, let's forget about storage and networking. Mm-hmm. They work similarly in their own domain, but just purely from the compute side. So you can actually take a look at what your cost leader is, and then you can start to make a, uh, a kind of a business proposal. Well, what would it mean if we could, like, let's say that our Lambda function takes 400 milliseconds to run for, for whatever <laughs> reason right now, what would the cost implication be if we could shave that to 300 milliseconds instead of 400 milliseconds? And, and based on the observability data that you have, you, you immediately know, well, then you're going to save this and that many dollars per month from, from that onwards. So then that could give you a budget. So does it make sense to rewrite, to try to rewrite this function? I, I haven't, uh, now that you mentioned that, then when you have good observability, you might not have realized that actually the reason why you have this one Lambda function that takes, let's say 400 milliseconds, maybe it's because the Lambda function is calling other Lambda functions and it's just waiting for the other Lambda functions. No, no and then you re-architect time. and not just, uh, Make it more efficient, but you then you have the idea that hey, and you know this very was well implemented that, incorrectly, completely. You you need to do something else like step functions you, or something. You can't have lambda functions calling lambda functions. That's not allowed. But, but if you have a chain, <laughs> chain, yeah. If if the lambda function is there at the at the beginning and it is waiting for other resources, then is it the correct way to implement? Yeah, we don't do that over here, right? No cursing allowed. If you look at other people's uh, implementations and yeah. then you might find things like that so so like yeah uh, like uh, tip number one whenever your lambda function is waiting for something don't use do step function make, make step functions to do to do that right so that, 
is how we work. But yeah, so 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 lambda functions uh, with observability can give you an idea how to identify the places where you should do optimizations. Because you know, if you have a lambda function that that runs once per month and it takes two seconds to run, an unbelievably long can take 15 minutes to run. No, we don't go there. But it's once per month, then maybe it's okay. It's that's on the border, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. but but we, we, yeah, so if it's just once a month, then then maybe we choose velocity or performance, right? Because um, it doesn't make sense to, to re engineer that to make it more efficient as it doesn't really affect any of our, our requirements. And that's kind of where we go to with law number one here, right? So, so, so cost needs to be a requirement, similarly to latency very often. Very often we're seeing that uh, we have this kind of latency budget that we know that our end customers are sensitive to latency. So, so whatever action they're doing on the user interface um, basically gives us some limited amount of milliseconds to spend from the user interface all the way to the back end and back again. And then of course, in, in modern architectures, we need to divide that budget between multiple services even. Um, um, so, so instead of just thinking about that latency as a, as a requirement, we can then also think of cost optimization as a requirement. Not, not may, maybe a, a specific budgeted requirement per se, but as pressure, you know, pressing development to a certain uh, um, direction, which is... La latency as a requirement has been around since day one. Yeah, 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 of course. It's yeah, I've I've seen that as from if you're looking at the specification, it's always mentioned there. It's easy to say, yeah, we, we need to have this and that. So that's that's that is nothing new. Like to exactly. have latency, but but to have that cost there as well. Then yeah, because it's now it kind of starts to be sim similar things. And, and, and yeah, latency... and and if you have larger latencies, it means that you're doing something for a longer time and that actually cost usually that you that cost yeah Somewhat, so, so uh, just 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 to pull in architecture for 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 a short while so uh because we're talking about latency here so um one way to to also decrease cost and or latency is to change the architecture um but this yeah, like from synchronous to asynchronous no, even even more simple, just adding a caching layer. Mm, yeah. So, so especially when we're talking about fairly large relational databases, the uh, whenever you're running out of capacity on your database, the, the the step up to the next size of database can have a huge financial impact. Basically, is uh, either doubling your your database costs or at least adding fifty percent because the steps are right there is no fine-grained <laughs> possibilities there so like if we're talking about large instances this this could mean like thousand or, or two thousand dollars more in in your database costs alone and the problem here is that that you're you're just pushing towards you know 95 percent usage of your resources which for me is actually a great place to be Yes, I'm getting what I'm paying for, 95% usage. But the problem, of course, is that wherever there is a peak, 
then we get decreased uh, um, user experiences via added latency because queries need to queue and, and that kind of stuff. So, so what we want to do is we want to uh, raise the uh, make, make make a larger instance. And of course, the problem is that if we have ninety five percent usage of our current infrastructure and we're doubling the size of an instance, then what is our usage like? About fifty. Yeah, forty seven point five. That sounds awful low to me. I'm like I was like my age. <laughs> yeah, I'm like paying so much. But I only get forty-seven point five percent. So, so then one of the ways to to smoothen out this is to actually add a cache cluster to it. So the cache will take care of of some of the repeated reads from the database. So it'll take off some of the uh, requirements from the database, and it might very well be cheaper than getting and the that cache. Can be in different places. It's yeah. And same is true, of course, also for London invocations. Like if your Lambda does the same thing all the time with you know predictable outcome from 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 a particular particular input, then maybe it's cheaper to serve that via cache than uh, uh, by actually calculating that every single time. So uh, so there are also these architectural way, ways for reality for kind of getting more out of your your architecture for a cheaper price. And, and at, the, at that point, you are you you have already, of course, figured out if you have bad queries to your database, and you have yeah, optimized yeah, yeah. the queries. And there are lots of places time. and lots of things that you should do anyway, and not. Yeah, that's maybe more debugging than uh, actually, uh, you know, anything else, in my opinion. But uh, I would say it's also about writing. Uh, as a professional, you you are writing better code. When you have more experience, you know beforehand that okay, that query will be a problem. You have eleven joins in that one query, then that will be a problem sooner or later. And uh, I, I would say you have to do all of them. Like uh, think about, for example, caching, but also you you have to look at critically at your like software architecture. That is this correct? So it's not only about optimizing. Code. Like the the cache or the the latencies do come from so many different places that you you have yeah. to look at from different directions. That absolutely All right. So so with regards to code, um, there, there has been some research, <laughs> which which um, surprisingly enough comes from Portugal. So this is from uh, Inesc, which is a uh, uh, national kind of uh, information or, or technical institute, uh, research institute. Um, and, and as it happens, Werner Vogels was actually working at INESC at his very early career as a computer scientist. So <laughs> uh, interesting to see things coming back together again. Um, again, I'm going to share the uh, paper URL. Um, and in this paper, um, they, they are measuring um, programming languages using different uh, kinds of uh, benchmarks. Um, and, and what they are actually uh, measuring is um, the amount of energy being used for a specific, so in joules for a specific benchmark, uh, then the time, the, the CPU time that was used 
uh, and the amount of memory that was used uh, across the uh, different uh, benchmarks. And the, I'm just going to, I have the paper in the video here, so I'm just going to scroll down to, uh, to kind of see what the end results were. And, um, and the, the, the most energy efficient one is C. C, right. Uh, and that's kind of the, the benchmark against where we're looking at all of the other ones. So from an energy and time point of view, energy and time go pretty much hand in hand here. So the best one is, is C, which kind of makes sense if you've done any software development. Uh, and then the, the second one is actually Rust before C++, which is slightly um, surprising. But this might be due to uh, you know library usage. And then next up, we've got Ada, which is a fairly old um, language, then followed by Java. So, so Java is kind of, the, the, yeah. the number for Java from energy point of view is two. So it's twice as, uses twice as much energy compared to C. As C, yes. Whereas the Rust number is 1.03. So it uses basically the same as more. So um, at the very end of this list of programming languages, we've got Python, which takes roughly 76 times the amount of energy than, uh, compared to C, and Perl, which takes roughly 80 times. Um, and, and How do you the, translate? Can you translate this directly to the execution time as well? That's on the time side. Right, so the next column is about time. That's CPU time. And these, of course, are different because different um, actions on the CPU take different amount of energy. Right. And I'm, I'm asking because from from uh, end user point of view, uh, if if uh, Python uses seventy six times more energy, does it matter from from the end user point of view? Or is it well, it shows up on your energy bill, right? Especially but, but, what, what does it mean from the end user's point of view? If, if you have a laptop, then it shows up on your electricity bill. <laughs> uh, if you're using AWS services. Uh, no, there's no, from exactly. AWS services point of view, there's no. And then you look at the time and the uh, memory parts. So in that, that sense, from the end user's point of view, well, of course, we should think about the environment, but maybe the time yeah, so, so is more I think it would be 72 times more so time consuming. Hand, almost hand in hand with the energy as well. Yeah. There are some differences which have to do probably with the um, compilers. So whether they are um, um, doing uh, some, some kind of interpretation or just in time compilation into machine code. Um, so, so that kind of probably decides the difference between time and energy here, because if you're doing uh, interpretation, you need to, to run two programs, the interpreter and <laughs> the actual end program. And, and if you now, if you think about this, then one would just, okay, let's do everything in C because it's more efficient. And yeah, you're, but, you're, you're yeah, doing yeah. things wrong then. <laughs> yeah. From, from my right. point of view, I'm, my my background is with java more than 25 years of java and 
C, which I learned before I learned Java, is way too dangerous a language to be given to almost anybody. It's you you run into trouble. Uh, you're going to make a huge mess if you just use C. And bear with me. For most programmers, software developers, it's much better to use a language that's safe and you're you're not leaking memory or uh, have problems like that. And if you go down to the list to Python, which is very inefficient in that sense that it uses a lot of energy and time, but the time to write the code and to maintain it might just dwarf that number. It could be so much yeah. easier to maintain the code that it, it's okay to use Python. Yeah, that, that's, kind of why Rust, that's also kind of why Rust is so interesting here, because Rust is um, type safe. And even though it doesn't have a, a garbage collector, it has built-in memory management um, capabilities. So um, Rust is kind of a, uh, a safer language with almost the same um, time coefficient than, than C. So that kind of a, starts to hit some kind of a sweet spot from, from that point of view. Uh, also, Go is fairly up um, on this chart. Uh, it, it also has a, a good kind of uh, lines of code versus uh, uh, functionality <laughs> ratio. Uh, which actually Java doesn't often have. <laughs> well, it's very verbose. But, <laughs> but, but but if you think about uh, the total cost, then it it it's definitely not only about how efficient the program itself is. It's also about how how easy it is to write the program. How easy it is for someone else to come and continue the project exactly. or maintain it after ten years. Exactly. Uh, so it's. It's actually fairly complex. So if we stare at these numbers only, uh, no, no, these are just that, one that, that's not the whole truth, in my opinion. Yeah. So this allows this is us really to interesting choose. data. This. Yeah, it allows us to choose between performance and then velocity, which could be kind of this combination of readability of code um, and the, the productivity of the, the developer. And, and if you have a very limited system, for example, uh, some integrated system then efficiency is you just want to use as efficient approach as possible but that's definitely not always the case mm -hmm. for example um, if, uh, if business logic is more important than than the actual efficiency you, you you're running one complex method that is very difficult to implement from that like it's, it's just complicated then maybe use a language that's that that's easy to write with Hmm. Instead of if you have a busy loop that that's run millions of times per second, then maybe you want to have. The yeah, this is maybe a little bit uh, unfair towards Python because uh, mm -hmm. I haven't actually read uh, what it is using. Because um, we're doing kind of some stuff that is somewhat um, interesting in Python. So because if they would be using, uh, for example, NumPy. Um, the NumPy library, which uses vectorized mathematics, which is written in, in Fortran, right? So it's actually not written in Python. The library is, is written in, in uh, or, or probably already called pre-compiled into uh, uh, machine code uh, uh, itself. Then when we're doing something data intensive like machine learning, 
the the Python part is actually just the very high level, you know, uh, how to run things, and then all of the actual compute does happen in in languages that are uh, different. That's a good combination, Python. something that you can uh, fairly easily write, and then the the, the actual the <laughs> busy loop is implemented in different language. Yeah. Um, uh, one interesting thing here on the very right-hand side of this, this table is the memory consumption. Um, and here, Pascal is leading. And this is- Why is that? It is due to the data structures used in Pascal compared to, to uh, others, right? So- um, That was yeah. actually one of the first languages that I've learned. Yeah, I mean, and forgotten too. already. After basic. <laughs> yeah, after basic, Pascal. Yeah. But, but yeah, so, so here we can see that Fortran and, and, and C and C++ and Go are fairly high up. Um, this is because we're, we're doing a lot of data structures uh, natively in these languages. Um, and then here, Java starts to be very bad. Um, six times, maybe due to, six times more memory than Pascal. Yeah, maybe due to garbage collection, uh, lazy garbage collection. And then also the 64-bit pointers. And then using object mm, reference, yeah. of course, adds adds to all of that. But um, uh, also kind of interesting. But the, the the differences here are way smaller than on the uh, time side. And then if we kind of go back to AWS and we think of how Lambda scales, Lambda scales. You know, you get more memory as you get more CPUs. So based on this chart, I would say that you know when comparing different languages, then memory is not going to be the pressure point, rather time is going to be the uh, pressure point. So it's be probably better to look at that and then just to maybe cross-reference with memory so that if you're moving from, from C to Python, for whatever reason, then <laughs> you're going to use, you know, roughly uh, two times more memory, but you're going to be 72 times uh, slower. Well, maybe the other way. Like if you're moving from Python to C, you're going to be 72 times faster, uh, but then your memory consumption is only going to half. Uh, 72 times more a dangerous language also. Yes, at yeah, least. So that it's, it's not so easy just to choose C, C always because... No, but, but this is... Kind of headaches after that. Yeah, this is and what I like. Certain, certain I like. projects, that's completely the correct choice, but not definitely not for every project. Yeah, I, I like the um, Rust being so high up uh, in here. Um, and that's kind of one of the reasons why Amazon has uh, decided to rewrite quite a lot of their their backend stuff in uh, Rust. So all of their networking stack is written in Rust. Uh, this is due to the Rust code being uh, able to, to prove that an algorithm is correct if it is run in Rust. So like mathematically proof, this is very important for security. So, so that's why the networking code is written in Rust in AWS. And recently they've also changed the S3 uh, backend, the storage backend code uh, into Rust from, from Java. From Java, okay. Yeah. Quite a lot of the front end stuff is written in Java still in, in uh, AWS. Um, so, so, so it's it's interesting to see, and this has also made me. Um, uh, I've been um, 
doing stuff in Python and JavaScript, like Python for kind of admin stuff, like a script that moves things around. It's easy to write and uh, you know performance doesn't really matter. So uh, just use that. Um, and then JavaScript for, for like backend uh, functionalities because of the amount of lines of code compared to functionality. It's really, uh, I have this rule that, you know, a single function cannot take more than one screen full of code. So you can immediately see what is going on. No, no need to go anywhere else. Um, but I've, I've kind of thought that I should convert over to, to Rust or those hotspot parts of the code, the ones that get really uh, called often. I have a question um, for you. If, think, think, uh, imagine you have a, a Lambda function, and let's say it's written in Java because I've wrote it, and I'm most, uh, well, I, I, I'm a Java guy, or at least I used to be. Your then, Java is better than your English. <laughs> much better. And, and then if I switch from using Java, let's say it's just business logic, something that runs in, I don't know, 50 milliseconds. So very, fairly straightforward. If I convert that or rewrite that in Rust, how big are the, the overheads there? Because if, if you be in charge for 50 milliseconds, how much would you shave off that if you switch to Rust? I, I I don't think it's going to be just divide the time by two or no, 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 no. of course. So, so there's some overhead there always. Uh, so it would be well, actually interesting just... to see how big a okay, difference so, it would make. So this is just the uh, based on these benchmarks that we use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. So for for these, it's true. <laughs> but um, yes, if you're running just that, but if you're if you're invoking lambda functions then it would be nice to see how that translates. So have a similar study where you are actually uh, yeah. so running some I, I, can, I can tell you a little bit what you would get from moving from Java to Rust, okay? First of all, your, your cold starts are going to be a lot faster, mm -hmm. right? Because with Java, the virtual machine has to start. It needs to create that graph of all of the, the, the whole class tree. All of that stuff gone, nothing like that. Second of all, your your um, deliverable and, but or, and you're not paying for that, but that's actually part of the latency. It's latency, it's part of your latency yep. budget yep. anyway, right? Um, and then your your deliverable or, or your artifact can be a lot smaller because it's just the uh, machine readable code. So it's it's more secure also from that point of view that you don't have the why it's more secure if it's smaller. No, but you don't have that dependency, that additional Java runtime environment that could have a bug in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? it's it's just your executable yes, yes. that's there. So so it's, it's smaller and uh, there's more 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 security uh, because there's a smaller uh, uh, kind yep. of a attack vector surface. Um, um, so so there are these additional things, and then mo most likely. Writing the same functionality in Rust takes you longer than in Java. 
especially you, because you don't know any Rust. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> In the beginning, it would take more time. Yeah, but uh, we, we can only take these numbers as a kind of a guideline. So this is something that we could kind of start off with and then say that, you know, if we have a specific function and um, it's written in Java and it costs us currently $1,000 a month for invoking that Java function. Well, if we would rewrite it in Rust, we could possibly reduce that by 50%, right? So to, to, to $500 per month. So now how long does it take us to rewrite it? Yeah. And if you're doing some sort of a microservice architecture or something similar, I don't mean that that's, it doesn't have to be microservice, but then you can, and for example, if you're using lambdas, then you can actually easily just pick those lambdas that have the late, longest latencies or which are running, giving you the largest uh, cost, and then just re-architect them and not the whole application. Because I know from business logic point of view, it's utter nonsense just to rewrite your whole code base because you are going to be stuck with testing and endless, endless, endless list of bugs if yeah, you're rewriting everything uh, except yeah we call, call this like targeted optimization right yeah. so, so just the ones that just the ones yeah. and this is something that you couldn't do in the past on-prem no. you were stuck with the architecture choices that were made probably for you so you couldn't even well you couldn't change the language you couldn't change how how different parts of the, the... Well, we had jni remember Barely, but but still, uh, if you're part of an organization that has a specific way of writing code, you're stuck with that. Yeah, exactly. And that that's happened with me. So that, that's actually one of the reasons I'm I'm I've been using Java for so long is that well I've been working with clients who use Java and mm -hmm. nothing else. As will most of our audience in all of our instruction that we have ever given. Maybe. Except for, continuing for, for, just a little bit with that, but from the software maintenance or your code maintenance point of view, it's very good that you have a limited choices, limited set mm -hmm. of languages and architectures. So if everybody's using a different uh, front-end framework for every single project, it's impossible to maintain in the long yeah. run. Exactly. You you have to find the balance there, but the, it's good that it's no no longer that you're you're stuck with one specific programming language and one specific database. And that's a really good thing. All right. So we've we've almost used up our allotted uh, time. Um, any final uh, remarks, Mikko, you wanted to share with us? Mm. I don't know. We yeah, could continue for, this uh, discussion uh, for a very long time. Yeah, uh, it's <laughs> really interesting. And and also for for someone who is uh, like has been writing software for a long time, it's a really good thing to actually see this. For example, this kind of a chart that okay, maybe Java is not the the correct tool for every situation. 
and yeah. and that takes yeah. time for for those who start now they are cloud native from day one they are not limited by the the decisions that that uh, were made a long time ago exactly yeah it's going to be interesting to see how this um changes the world um we're we're kind of bystanders right so so we of course try to instruct our audience uh to take these kind of things into uh, in, into uh, account when they're doing their own architectures their own decisions um but then on the other hand we, we can just kind of you know sit by it and look at what really happens <laughs> in the world and it's it's good that it's like going back to Dr. Fogel's here, it's it's good that it's now finally a, a proper talking point. Like I've I've heard for, for a very long time felt like I'm the only person who wants to talk about this. <laughs> and then and now we actually uh you know get get somebody with a platform to to talk about this as well. So uh it would be nice to see a study also from like software maintenance point of view, which languages mm -hmm. are easier. And which ones are difficult to maintain, because that, yeah, that's there. one part where the cost comes from. Your your. Yeah. Uh, I think ACM culture. does a study like that. Um, I can try to to look for that for our next <laughs> session. Um, I, at least I have seen. Uh, it, it was somewhere together with the uh, popularity of programming languages. There, there was also some uh, discussion about the. The, the kind of usability and, and long-term maintenance point of views. And, and for organizations that are cloud native and start now something new, it's easy to make good choices there. But if you have already millions and millions of lines of code, how do you change that? Yeah. That's, that's difficult. Yeah, well, maybe maybe then you go back to the observability and have a good overview of where does the cost actually come from? And then, hmm? well, Pick up, pick up those places where it's easy to change something, and like re-architecture, different database, or just optimize those those parts of your code which are well used a lot. Yeah, maybe we we revisit this discussion um, on a later date, right? Sure. Okay, so I think that's it for us uh, this time. Thanks again for uh, viewing or, or listening. Um, my name is Joris Havainen, and I'm joined here by Mikko Nieminen. We're both instructors for deepdives.eu. And uh, hopefully see you either watching the stream next week, Saturday at noon GMT, or maybe in a future training that we're instructing for you. <laughs> anyway, thanks for being here, and uh, see you later. Till then. Bye. Bye.